Hey, good morning, everyone. It was um, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that my family and I we were on a holiday, and we tend to we always seem to somehow find our way either to a zoo or an aquarium or both. It just tends to, to be what we do. And uh, uh, this time round, we were holidaying in Poole in Dorset, and we um, went one day to, uh, to into Bournemouth, uh, just down the road, and we went to the aquarium there on the on the seafront. And so we spent uh, quite a bit of time there. Really enjoyed it, and afterwards we, we were kind of talking about what, uh, what our favourite animals were that we saw there, what were the highlights for us. And for me, um, the highlight for me of this particular trip was um, they've got two sea turtles, uh, and the, the biggest tank that's there, you know that they have the tanks that you can walk, you can kind of walk through as well and, and kind of see what's going on. And I spent quite a lot of time, I, I think I was holding the rest of my family up because I just wanted to stand and just watch and, and enjoy them. And for me, that was a, a real highlight for me, being able to see, to see them there. It's really not something that we would get to see very often, so I was hugely appreciative of having the opportunity to do that and um, now I don't know about you I'm not sure what people's understanding of the the breeding cycle of sea turtles might be it's probably not that strong it's not a topic we would necessarily uh, talk about very often but what I do understand uh, is that when it comes to time for breeding season for sea turtles the females uh, migrate back to the beaches and they find sandy beaches and they um, make their way up the beaches lay their eggs in the sand and then cover them over to protect them and they leave them there. Uh, and then obviously over time, the baby turtles grow within the eggs and then when it's time for them to hatch, they hatch at night time uh, and they make their way out of the eggs uh, and it's what they have to do is fairly quickly is make their way down to the sea, the, the safety of the sea for them. The, um, what scientists think is that these turtles, when they're born, they have sort of um, uh, a bit of an innate instinct to they 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 see where the moonlight is reflecting off of the sea and they head towards where the light is coming from and that's a way that they know which direction to go to it's a fairly perilous journey for these baby turtles uh, there's lots of predators who are there trying to uh, trying to trying to get them um, but what they're finding as in particularly in recent years as uh, kind of beach resorts are developing as housing is increasing by the beach. There's a, a huge amount of artificial lighting that's coming in and what it's doing is it's disorientating the, the turtles. So where previously they would have spotted the moonlight on the sea, now where there's all this built up land and resorts and ha uh, light, uh, housing and street lights and that kind of stuff, they're actually becoming disoriented and making their way away from the sea and heading towards land. And obviously that increases their risk of, of being caught by predators. Uh, they've got in danger of the busy roads that are there. They're even finding that some of them are falling down into drains and that kind of thing and getting stuck. And it's very much a, a pretty significant problem um, for them. And it, it's being realised and it's been realised as a problem. And as such, people, a lot of people are doing whatever they can to, to, to reduce the risk, to enable the, the turtles to continue safely on their journey. So the things put in place to kind of reorient the turtles where they have become disoriented by these other things. The reason I'm saying this is because this came to my mind a few years ago. I was hearing someone talk about actually when, when people become Christians, so when people start to put their faith in Jesus, do we just assume they know what it is to follow Jesus? Or what are we putting in place to support them and to help them on their journeys? Because there will be things uh, whether intentionally or not, 
that, would, that can potentially come in and cause a bit of disorientation. Where actually, we're, as we, when we become Christians, we're called to walk with God and we're called to, to kind of continue on this journey with God. But there are many things that would seek to, to distract us. There are things that can come in and disorient us. Things of the world that actually in and of themselves might seem very appealing and might seem like something worth giving ourselves to. Actually, we, how, how are we caring for and nurturing people on their journey uh, with God? But it's not just in the early days, but this is something for all of us as we seek to grow and as we seek to mature in our relationship. Actually, we fairly often need this kind of this realigning, this reorientation, being able to, to be seen. Actually, this is the way in which we are to walk. And I was thinking as well about uh, apostles within the church. And, you know, what, one of the, the, the main things that, that we think of when we think of apostles is about pioneering in terms of birthing and establishing new churches, seeing churches uh, birthed and, and growing, um, but not just kind of in those early stages, but also the ongoing care, the ongoing nurturing and the ongoing love that they have. And it's what we see in, in a lot of the letters in the New Testament that were written by the apostles. We see this ongoing care, this ongoing nurturing, this ongoing teaching, this ongoing aligning that all of us need as we continue on with our journey. As I say, because whether it's persecution or opposition that we might face, or whether it's, as I say, things of the world that might actually seem very attractive and tempting to give ourselves to, we just need that care uh, to, to draw us back. Sometimes, as we read through the letters, it seems like a fairly gentle sort of a correction. Other times, it's really not. Some of these churches were not doing very well, uh, and actually it needed someone to just step in and say, you, you need to just get kind of get back where you need to be going on your journey with, with God. And today, we, as Mike said, we're starting a new series. And in this series, we're going to be looking at one of these letters that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that, in a sense, had just been birthed. It was in its very early years, very much in its infancy. And the letter we're going to be exploring together is 1 Thessalonians. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians, a bit later on when we come to, to unpack some of this scripture, it will come up on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, if you find your way there. But my plan for this morning is that today's going to serve really as a bit of an introduction to this series. It's going to span over seven, seven or eight weeks uh, that, that we're going to be spending on this. But this morning, I want us to look a little bit at the background and the context of the Thessalonian church, how it was that it came about, what journey they, can't, what journey they went on even to, to become a church. Then I want to give a brief overview of Paul's letter to them. What are some of the overriding themes and the, and, and the focuses that we can see throughout the letter? And then we're going to look at um, just three verses at the beginning of, of Paul's letter that he uses as an introduction to the church. There. So quite a bit really to cover, but we think it's helpful for us at the beginning of a series uh, to really understand the context of the letter. Because if we understand the context, if we understand the state of the church and the nature of the church, then it will really help us in understanding what's being written and why it's being written and in the way it has. So Thessalonica was, at this time, it was the second largest city in Greece. It's at the time of the Roman Empire and it served as the capital of the Roman province of, of Macedonia. So it's a very significant, very important city. And where it was positioned uh, on the coast, it was, it, was in a natural, it was in a natural port, which actually put itself in a very strong position. So being in a natural port, it had strong uh, um, links in terms of travel by sea, but also by road. Uh, it was um, 
had a population of over, they reckon over 100,000, which at the time, that was considered a, a big city. That's a big city now, but at, particularly at that time, it was a, considered a very large city. And it was seen as a centre of trade and a centre of philosophy. So there was a lot going on there. This wasn't an insignificant place. In fact, it was a very significant place, the capital of that province. Um, there. And in Acts 17, so Acts, which kind of really chronicles the start of the church, the birthing of the church, seeing how it was um, growing throughout the nations. We read in Acts 17 about how, having left Philippi, Paul and Silas, they headed to this city of Thessalonica. So they've been in Philippi, they made this journey, it was about 120 miles, so it was a long, a long journey for them to take, and they headed to Thessalonica. Paul's model, if you can call it that, or Paul's methodology of... Uh, um, of, of teaching and of seeking to, to start churches and cities was that he would head straight for, for the synagogues. So where he knew that there would be gatherings of the Jewish community there. And this was his model. He would go straight for the synagogues and he would unpack the scriptures to them. I think some of the, some of the main ways he did it from, from what I understand was that he would look at their scriptures which would speak uh, of prophecies of one who they were waiting for. Uh, of a messiah, of a saviour, one that was to come and to rescue the people. And he would spend time looking at these, these passages of scripture with them and he would show them how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that had been spoken. So it's one of the things that he did. And then he also shared with them that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, about this man Jesus, his, his life, death and his resurrection and in doing so showing them again how all the prophecies were fulfilled. And this was kind of his technique, if you like, of going into a city and about teaching people about Jesus. And in this city of Thessalonica, uh, we're told that he, he went into the synagogue on three, uh, on three Sabbaths, which would have been a Saturday. So he would have gone in on three Saturdays, teaching the people that were there. And there was a response from the people to what he was saying. We were told that there were a number of, of, of a response among the Jews there. There were many devout Greeks who also responded to what he was saying, uh, as well as a number of the leading women in, the, in that community there. So there was a great, this great response to the news of Jesus. People committing to follow Jesus, to put their faith and their trust in him. But while there was a good response from some, it also caused a hostile response in others who were not happy that Paul and Silas were there teaching about Jesus and coming in and, and disrupting the way things were. And there, there were some within that, that Jewish community, they hired a mob to go to the house of a guy called Jason. Now, what we know of Jason is that Jason uh, had kind of been putting uh, Paul and, and Silas up and giving them somewhere to stay, kind of giving them a base to work from. And this mob, they go to Jason's house and they take him and they haul him in front of the authorities. And he's made to, to uh, put like a, a financial deposit down. He, he's made to do that. And, and from, from what we can see, there's kind of this understanding that no more trouble can be caused here. They were holding Jason responsible for these guys that were, were in his home. And it gets to the point where actually Paul and Silas are forced out of the city because there's so much unrest kind of bubbling and, and simmering away under the surface. It's better for them if they were to go. But it wasn't, that wasn't necessarily how they'd intended things to be. They'd gone there. They'd seen people getting saved. They'd seen the church starting to be gathered, starting to be established. And then they're forced out of the city. They go on to Berea and then further on into Athens. Uh, so as I say, they were forced to leave this fledgling church much sooner perhaps than they would have hoped. 
bit later down the line, Paul sends Timothy, his friend Timothy, he sends Timothy on his behalf back to Thessalonica to see how the church is doing. He himself can't go there because he's already been kind of forced out. So he sends Timothy to have a look at how things are going, to spend time with the church there and to report back to him because he's desperate to know how this, this early fledgling church is doing. And Timothy reports back to him. And this letter of 1 Thessalonians is kind of, then it's Paul's response to what Timothy has told him. So he's feeding back from what Timothy has said uh, and, and kind of um, just being able to pour out a little bit of his heart for the church in that. And it was written around 50 AD, they think around 50 AD, while Paul was in the city of Corinth. So that's a little bit of background. So I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand kind of the situation the church came out of and the situation that Paul and the other guys found themselves in uh, as we work our way through. Now, reading through this letter, particularly as I was preparing for this, for this series, there were a few things that stood out most to me in terms of just overriding themes and things that, that, that Paul keeps coming back to. The first thing is this, is that you really cannot escape. As you read through this letter, there is such a warmth and affection that comes from Paul in the way that he's writing. It's not necessarily the way that we would, we would see in other letters that he's written. Some of the other letters he's written are fairly um, th- kind of theologically, you have to really kind of work through what he's saying and kind of wrestle with things quite a bit. And sometimes he speaks with a real sharpness and a real directness because that's what that particular church needs to hear. But for this church here in Thessalonica, there's just a real sense of love and a real sense of affection. And as I read through it, it, it was actually a real joy to be able just, you can just gather you kind of can feel the heart behind the guy that was writing this letter. And it seems to be something that's really genuine about him as well. He's, he longs to be back there. Remember, he was forced out sooner than he would have wanted to be. And it just keeps coming back time and time again. He's like, I really long to be with you. I want to be spending time with you. I really care about you guys. I really love you guys. I want to be with you and spending time with you and to be, see what's going on and to be a part of it and to be able to have some input in here. And it comes across so clearly You see, they were separated from one another by geography. And this might seem like a really obvious thing for me to say, but I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of this. We're talking about a time where communication doesn't happen the way it does now. It's, it's fairly easy now to get hold of someone, and fairly quick to get hold of someone if you want to, particularly with the way technology is going. You can be communicating with someone within seconds, even if you're in a different country. But we need to remember, actually, for Paul, he longs to be with this church, but he's miles and miles away from them. How can he communicate with them? He can, send, he can go by himself, or he can send people on his behalf, but he's got to wait for them to get there. Then he's got to wait for them to get back. Even if he was sending a letter, it's the same process. Someone's got to get it there, and then someone's got to send a letter back. So there's this real period of... Uh, of, of yearning and wanting to be with them but not being able to they've been separated by geography but they're completely joined in heart with one another you just can't escape it and I think it's such a a wonderful thing kind of the tone of this letter and I hope that as we go through you will see that as well the second thing that really stuck out to me is that you could imagine that Paul might have some anxiety and concern about this church this was a new church it was made up of new believers So we've got people, men and and women, who had been living one way, 
now, having responded to the gospel that Paul taught, they're, they're living with new convictions. They've got these living with new moral standards that are all very fresh to them. How would they be doing? Not only that, we will find out that they're being tested by persecution and opposition. Not everything's easy for them, as we've been, been a lot of the things that have been coming out in our time today has been, do you know what, sometimes, oftentimes, life doesn't go the way that we would want it to or would expect it to. And it was true for this church here. They were facing opposition and persecution. How had they coped in Paul's absence? But through the letter, there is much that Paul commends this church on. There's a lot that he's encouraged by. There's a lot that he's saying, well done. I'm so thankful to hear this report from Timothy about how well that you were doing. Timothy's report back has clearly encouraged him to the extent that Paul is able to give thanks for the example that this church is to, to the people, not just, in, not just in the church community, but in reaching far beyond that in the society and the community in which they lived. So there was a lot to be encouraged by. But while there is a lot that is good, we also see that there are some things that Paul needs to address. So this is where I was thinking about with that, the kind of thing about the turtles at the beginning, this sense of that reorientation to stop that, that kind of drifting towards things that aren't helpful. Actually, there was a danger for this church that, that there were a few things that maybe if they were to go down that line, it might get them in a place that's not actually where they should be. That's not going to be helpful on them with their journey with God. So while there's stuff that Paul is like, you're doing this really well. I commend you so much on this, but actually let's just touch on a few of these areas because I just need to bring a sense of realignment and reorientation, a bit of teaching just to help you and to strengthen you on your way. See, this church, this Thessalonian church, but for us as well, we've been set apart by God with a call to do things differently than the way the world around us does things. So they, uh, we're to live lives that are, effectively, we're to live lives that are pleasing to God. And this is what Paul is instructing the church in. And the other thing is this, is that while it's a short letter, a recurring theme comes up in every chapter in this book. I think there's uh, five chapters. It comes up in every chapter. Paul talks about the return of Jesus. You're kind of thinking, if he talks about it in every chapter of this letter, then it must be a very significant thing for Paul. And there must be a very significant reason why he's looking to, to really keep um, building it into this church. Chapter 4, Paul explains what's going to happen when Jesus comes back for his church. And he actually says, he says, this is something that we should use and share with one another and speak to one another often as an encouragement to one another. Maybe as a little bit of an aside, it got me thinking, are we good at that? How often do we talk to one another about Jesus' return as a source of encouragement? Because Paul, we'll, find, we'll spend a bit more time on that later on in the series, but actually Paul's saying the return of Jesus is something that should really encourage us and should really help us. It's a security. It's a hope. And really hope, kind of at its most basic, I guess, hope is about trusting God. So if the church is called to live lives that are set apart for God, we're to live lives that are pleasing to God, but we're also called to trust God as well. And these things work interdependently of each other. You have to have both of those working together. See, it's the hope of, of Jesus coming 
that provides the context within which we live a life that's set apart for God. I'll just say that again. It's the hope of Jesus coming and the hope of Jesus' return that's the context that provides the context with which we, in which we live our lives. So the security that gives us should affect the way that we live. And again, we'll unpack that a bit more as the weeks go on. And this is really where the series title has come from. I've called it Living Ready. In chapter 5, Paul writes, we're not to get concerned, we're not to get preoccupied with the timings of when Jesus returned. All we need to know is there's a certainty that he's going to. But if we don't need to worry about the times and the seasons, we don't need to concern ourselves with that, then we just need to be, just ready yourself, because we know the certainty that he is returning. But, um, so in the title, what, I'm try- what we're trying to convey is that this is a letter that teaches us and encourages us how we are to live in the certainty that one day Jesus is going to be coming back. Title for today. And I'm pretty much most of the way through now, but the title that I've given today is Living, I've called it Living the Life. Now, I don't know what for you, what kind of setting or scenario gets you in that moment where you just, have you ever had this where you just sit there for a minute or whatever you're doing, just think, ah, oh, this, is, this is the life. For me, uh, I don't, I don't um, get to do this particularly often at the moment, but for me it's sunny day, sat by a lake, fishing. I get those moments where I just sit there and I just think, oh, this is the life. That sense of, it's that feeling where you think, I would love to have this feeling all the time. I would like life to be like this. But when I'm talking about having a title of living the life, that's not what I'm going for. Because the reality is, is that for the vast majority of people, life is not like that all the time. We have those moments Sometimes we will have them more frequently, sometimes a bit more spaced out, where we just think, do you know what, this is the life. I just love this moment. But that's not how life is all the time, is it? So when I'm talking about living the life, I'm not thinking about, oh, this, this is all about just living the life, where everything's nice and easy and good and pleasant and all the time. So what do I mean? In Galatians 2.20, Paul writing to a different church now, church in Galatia, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was living his life through Jesus because of what Jesus had done for him. In that sense, Paul's saying, because of what Jesus has done, I can put my trust in Jesus moment by moment, allowing him to direct and empower me in everything that I do. I think that's what it is to be living the life. We've been called to a new life in Jesus and we live this life in Jesus and we live it moment by moment, putting our trust in him, allowing him to guide us, allowing him to empower us. Let's read the first three verses of 1 Thessalonians 1 to 3 and there's just a few things I want to draw out just by way of the introduction to the letter. It says, Paul, Silvanus, so that's Silas, it's just another version of his name. So we've got Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always uh, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think briefly about the confidence of Paul, Silas and Timothy. 
And then about how the, the, the Thessalonian church was really living out their identity. So thinking about the confidence of Paul, Silas and Timothy, this church was new. We've kind of covered that a bit in the background. The men who had started it, they've been chased out of town. The believers who were there were facing opposition and persecution. This church could be in a very sort of wobbly, precarious state if we look at the circumstances surrounding it. And as I say, later on, Paul does go on to address some concerns. He does go on to bring some of that realignment that is needed in the face of what they're going through. He also brings encouragement. But these opening verses, I think, they really reveal the confidence that these guys have. But it's not a confidence in their brilliance. It's not a confidence in their ability as church planters, as the ones who have gone in there and set these churches up and established and that's not where their confidence lies. Paul's not confident because it's one of his churches. Paul is confident because he knows that it's God's church. He writes with great confidence, not because he has confidence in himself, not because he has confidence in the church, but because he has confidence in God. Look how many times in those first three verses that Paul, meant, Paul speaks about God, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just in those three verses, he keeps coming back to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Phil Moore has written a really excellent series of, of commentaries. And in his one on this letter, he speaks of Paul, Silas and Timothy as like extras in a drama. Then in the fact that they don't see themselves as the main players or the main characters. That it's not a drama about themselves, but they see themselves really as extras, having a role to play. He says that they keep the focus on Jesus because Jesus alone played the leading role in the conversion of the Thessalonians. They worked hard with Jesus, but they never forgot that they were simply extras in the drama. I think it says a lot about the character of these men. The Thessalonians were transformed by the grace of God, not by the brilliance of Paul. But we see in this early exchange, in this early exchange here, the confidence of Paul, Silas and Timothy is in God. This is God's church. God is with them. And their confidence in God, it doesn't lead them to sit back. It doesn't lead them to be passive. It inspires them and it propels them into prayer. It says, we pray constantly for you. We come to God constantly with thanksgiving. So confident are we in God that we're going to bring all of our cares, we're going to bring all of our concerns, we're going to give all of our praise and thanksgiving directly to him because we we trust him and trust what he's going to do with you. They give thanks. Do you know, I read somewhere in the week that we what we give thanks for is an indication of what our heart longs for. What we give thanks for is an indication of what our heart longs for. So when we see what Paul and Silas and Timothy are giving thanks for, we get a real glimpse into their heart, I think, and the thanksgiving they have for this church. So they're confident. And what about the church then? They're, this church, is, they're, what we'll see is that they are living out their identity in God. Paul addresses the church as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he first 
addresses them. The word used for church in, in the Greek is ecclesia. Now the word ecclesia actually means an assembly. It's a word that is not actually used exclusively for, for a church. It's just an assembly or a gathering of people. You would have had many different ecclesia, many different assemblies throughout the city. All with different priorities, all with different focuses, all with different reasons for gathering. But Paul distinguishes this assembly from the others by emphasising the truth of who they are in. He says you're a gathering together, but you're a gathering in God the Father and Christ Jesus. This is what distinguishes them from every other group who would have been meeting across that city. That is where their identity lies. You're a community, you're a group, you're a gathering, an assembly in God, the Father and in Jesus Christ. This is who they are. And it's because of what God has done through Christ, they've been brought into community relating to one another. A community that is rooted in, I read it put like this, I thought this was such a helpful way, a community that draws its life from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? It draws its life from God himself. So Paul, at the beginning of this letter, he's reminding them who they belong to. This is where their identity lies. This is where our identity lies also. Now, I don't know what you would call a collective group of people from Faversham. The best I could come up with was Favershamites. I don't know. I didn't spend too long. Maybe someone can correct me somewhere down the line. But this is where our identity lies also. Because we could write to the church, I don't, I'm going to turn this just into a bit of a silly thing now, I don't mean it to, but to the church of the Favishamites in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our identity is. That's who we belong to. That's what distinguishes us from other groups and communities around. Because that's where our identity lies. And at the very outset, Paul commends the church for their faith, their love, and their hope. Do you remember I said a moment ago, there are certain things that Paul is like, I just, I just want to commend you on this, and I want to encourage you on this. Within the first three verses, Paul is straight to the point, he's saying, I, I'm so encouraged and so thankful for the faith, love, and hope that you are displaying, and that you are excelling in. This is what they remember about the, 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 Thessalon the Thessalonians. It's getting harder as I go on to say it. The church is to be a community that is distinguished by faith, love and hope. These three things form the essence of the Christian life. And it's mentioned, these three things together are mentioned often in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Romans 5.1-5, 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, Galatians 5.5-6, Ephesians 1.15-18, Colossians 1.3-6, 1, 1 Peter 1.22-22. Do you get my point? These three things, faith, love, and hope, are the essence of the Christian life. John Calvin said that these three things are a brief definition of true Christianity. This is what true Christianity should look like. So we have our identity as Christians, we have our identity as Christians individually and corporately as the church, rooted in God through Jesus. So we have new identity, new life, and we live this life out. Faith, love and hope. Worked out not solely in the, in the Christian community. But in every sphere of life. 
on our front lines, wherever we find ourselves, we're to live these things out. Again, in the week, someone was saying, these aren't, they're not like clothes you put on on a Sunday. They're things you wear wherever you go throughout the week. Faith, love, and hope. They're inner virtues, but they're not just to, be, just to stay within. They're coupled with practices. They've worked out. They're productive. They are meant to produce something throughout the whole of the week in every area of our lives. Faith. Faith rests on the past. Faith rests on what God has done for us through Jesus. We receive salvation through faith. Not because of anything we've done. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've merited it. One of the first songs we sung this morning got me scribbling in my notes. Because we sang together this morning, Lord, I'm grateful. Amazed at what you've done. My finest efforts are filthy wrecks. But I'm made righteous by trusting in the Son. I have God's riches at Christ's expense. We bring nothing to the table. Well, actually, we do bring stuff to the table. We bring ourselves and everything, that, that, whatever that comes. But God takes that. And he makes us new in Jesus. So we have faith. But faith is busy in the sense that it leads to something. Faith leads to good works. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because our identity is now rooted in him, because our sins have been forgiven and our lives have been transformed, the faith that we have should affect the way that we live because it should lead to good works as a response to what Jesus has done for us. James chapter 1, 14 to 17. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, which, is re- which rests on the past, leads to good works. So if faith rests on the past, love works in the present. Okay? Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present. It works within the church family. And it has to work outside it as well. Some types of love are characterised by loving those that we would consider worthy of receiving it. We love those that we consider to, to be worthy. That deserve it. That I'm glad to be able to, to give love to or there can be types of love that desire, they desire to possess. I, I want to have that. I've, I need it. I've got to have it. Sometimes love can feel like that. But the love that we are called to is not a love of the worthy. It's not a love that desires to possess. But instead we are called to a love that is given quite irrespective of merit. Or how worthy or deserving we feel people are. It's a love that does not seek to possess or to have or to gain for ourselves. It's a love that seeks to give. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says to this church, he says, you are doing so well in love. Love for people leads us to labour for them. To give ourselves in service to others. To toil, to endure hardship for love's sake. So faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. This is why Paul speaks about the return of Jesus often. And he speaks about it as a confident expectation of what's to come. This is where you put your hope. Because it's certain. Because it's going to happen. He's saying, church, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of your infancy, as you're seeking to work out what this life is like that you've been called to, your hope is to rest on Jesus who's going to come back for you. 1 Colossians 3.5 says, we always... Um, sorry, that we always that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard about your faith in Christ, Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope you have that is laid up for you in heaven. Then later on in Colossians, a few, a few chapters later on, Colossians 3, 4, Paul writes this. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, so when Christ comes back, then you will appear with him in glory that's what your hope looks like that's where your hope is to be found when Jesus returns when he appears then you will appear with him no one no ruler no power can rob you of this hope I have days where I can find it hard to have hope I'm sure all of us do where we think, actually, where is hope to be found in the place where I'm at, at the minute? In the situation where I'm at. For this church that Paul writes this letter to, in that face of persecution, maybe some of those people there were feeling the same. Actually, what hope, where do we place our hope? I might not feel particularly hopeful at the minute. And Paul is saying, do you know what? No ruler, uh, no power, no one can rob you of the hope because it's found in Jesus. It's kept for you, it's secure, it's guaranteed. It's not going anywhere. And hope leads to what the translation in my Bible is steadfastness, or another word for that is endurance. It enables us to endure. It enables us to keep pressing on and to keep going. It's not resignation, but it's, it, hope brings fortitude. It strengthens us. It steals us. When Mike was sharing briefly before he brought the notices, you were talking about quick, quicksand, standing on the rock of Jesus. Don't know if it reminded everyone else on that song. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's what Paul's saying. Your hope is in Jesus. If you, tr- if you look to put your hope in other things, it's like quicksand, it's like sinking sand. It won't last it won't survive the test of time but i hope in jesus will so to the church in fabersham in god the father and the lord jesus christ grace to you and peace
Be encouraged. Live out your identity in faith that leads to good works, in love that labours for others, and in hope that produces endurance. Can we have the band up? It would be good just to draw our time together with a song of praise and thanksgiving.